All right, welcome to another episode of Finding Peaks. I'm excited to be back. I've been out of the host seat for a little bit. Jason Fries must have been here, hopefully not boring the crowd too much yeah. Um, yeah. in that regard. Yeah, really academic discussions while I was here. Yeah. <laughs> mainly, mainly <laughs> academic. I know we've had Chris Burns, I think Matt, a few others come to the show recently, so hopefully that creates a little flavor and variety for the crowd, a little bit differently than what right. I bring here. But um, so here I am again. <laughs> and the topic for today um, that I would like to bring forward is uh, AMAs, Against Medical Advice Discharges. That is, uh, I think, if I'm reading the data accurately here from SAMHSA, NIDA, and some of these institutes, that about 9 to 12% of patients who enter addiction treatment centers, detox, residential services, even aftercare programming, AMA, um, within a very short time period uh, inside addiction treatment cultures. And um, that happens for a variety of different reasons, but I think the thing that we want to do is help prepare families for what that moment looks like and what to be prepared for. Um, one step back is a little backdrop to this that I think is important that I want to acknowledge. Among the 14,000 treatment centers that exist in this country, there are bad treatment centers. Um, and we're not going to pick on anybody, but I just want to be honest about that as an approach, that it is true that from time to time your loved one will find themselves in a position where the treatment is just bad. What I want to say about that before we dive into the questions is that if that is the case, it doesn't mean no more treatment. It means we've got to find the next place and keep treatment directional. And that is the first strategy. So let's say that Johnny's in treatment. He's now reaching out to you, the family member, and saying, I am in the worst possible place. I've been lied to. This is not what I expected, and I want to get out of here. What is our best first advice in that moment? Because we want to keep things directional um, in that regard. What would you guys offer up clinically as a solution in that instance to motivate it? Does Johnny go to the home first, or are we thinking, you know, what is our best first step forward here? Well, I think you bring up a really good point in that if there's 14,000, which I believe you, if there's 14,000 drug and alcohol treatment centers in the country, uh, some of those are going to be not great. Um, you know who you are. <laughs> you, we know you're watching. We know, <laughs> we know you are. Uh, but I do think overall, if, if a treatment center, if it's a parent's belief or a loved one's belief that uh, their loved one is in a center that is... Uh, uh, competent and doing a good job with their loved one. Um, certainly, we do look to families quite frequently to set up and establish boundaries. If you, if you, basically communicating as succinctly as possible with their loved one. If you leave early, this is going to be our response. And I, and very rarely is it the appropriate response to be, well, you'll just your loved one just gets to come back into their same situation, whatever that might be, whether it's returning to their apartment or their home or whatever, or going to a parent's home, uh, leaving treatment early is not a setup for success um, for the most part. And so we really do work on, when we're working on retention um, with families, it, I would be looking for an increase in communication from the treatment center that like, uh, so if a family member were to get a call uh, from maybe a loved one at Peaks that, and maybe it's, uh, not in front of a counselor or whatever, just on kind of a, a regular call, saying that they would like to leave early. My first suggestion would be to 
loop in the treatment team, like confirm with a counselor, a case manager, um, that this is what either the plan is or are you guys aware of this and how do we proceed? Um, because oftentimes uh, we talk at peaks about there are times, and we've talked even on this show, that there are times in peaks where we uh, increase the discomfort within peaks as a way to kind of uh, prompt change and to make somebody a little bit uncomfortable to, to prompt them forward. And those are sometimes the, the times when clients call and want to um, leave a little early. And so just at that point, it's just important for parents or family members to hold a boundary and just say, well, that's interesting. Uh, it sounds like you're uncomfortable, uh, but we suggest you stay. I, I always challenge families to offer some empathy because uh, it's a feeling, and uh, that's what I notoriously catch grief for here Absolutely. on the show. Um, but I'd like to offer empathy. Like, it just sounds like you're having a hard time there, and that, that is difficult, and I want to affirm that. Um, and then offer the, the boundary with that, the like, uh, but we're not going to support you leaving early. Pretty, less words the better. I like, to, I like to tell families, like, that should be right about a two-minute conversation, honestly. Like, yeah. you can deliver empathy and a boundary probably in... Well, Clint, I think you in like four seconds. Uh, you, you're very, you have a lot right. of brevity with you. It's so subtle, you don't even notice it. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I just see it. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I think um, I, for me and my perspective, I guess having that conversation even earlier, um, like way early on in the treatment process, recognizing that what we, at least at our level of care, right, which, which is, um, a stabilization level of care. Like this is an almost inevitable moment because, because we are existing within the realm of the craving state, right? All of our treatment is happening within these sort of uh, peaks and valleys, rises and falls of the craving state, and that, which will be activated and can be activated actually pretty, almost predictably. Um, so right off the bat, edu educating families, and actually I'm a big believer in educating the client as well. Like, hey, you're going to experience these feelings. Like you're gonna have this moment where you want, can't get out of here fast enough and you're gonna use any excuse in the book to do it. And I guarantee you it's not because the sheets aren't a high enough thread count. You know, it's because your, your brain is telling you you need to go use substances, right? Like that you are uncomfortable because we have created an environment that, that has a level of discomfort in it and the best way for you to respond to that is to go use the substances which are the best coping mechanisms that you've found. Um, so I think being able to have that conversation with the clients and then also preparing the families, like, hey, these are, these are things that just happen. So sort of normalizing that process, taking some of the fears, taking some of the anxiety away from it, making it actually developing a plan really, really early on as far as, all right, so what happens when, um, so what happens when your loved one calls and they are screaming for that they're horrible, they're miserable, this is the worst experience of their life, and they want you to come pick them up? Like, what is that? Let's actually role play that, let's actually have that conversation now so that when it happens in the moment, we're not you know, all kind of taken aback and trying to scramble and getting caught up in this sort of emotional impulse that is really just reflecting the craving state that the, that the client is experiencing. So, um, so I guess that would be, if you talk about that, that best first step, that, that would be where I would start. Yeah, and I, one of the things, well, for me it's important just to state that I think that the craving state is the thing that is driving the, this food is no longer good and I don't need to be here. My Tempur-Pedic mattress here at Peaks, no longer comfortable, not enough pillows, all that. 
it's the pointing to the negative features of it prompts to me that we're just experiencing somebody going through craving and trying Absolutely. to take that power back in some way and move themselves in the appropriate direction. What I'm curious about maybe, um, because I'm not a clinician and in philosophy we were told never to make up metaphors, but you guys are seemingly more brilliant at metaphors than I could be. Right. So out. I'm gonna try and bridge this a little bit, introduce my own metaphor because I, we, in a way, you know, Families don't know what it's like to have that craving state, at least in relation to drugs and alcohol, if you're not addicted, right? So what I'm, what I'm thinking of here is, you know, uh, being hungry or hanger, right? When we're hungry, and we've all been around people who are hungry, right, and a little bit angry along the way, there's sort of a, there's no way to really like engage with them positively when they're in that moment until we get them food and satiate that aspect. So I'm curious if we can draw some sort of uh, energy towards the family system or some sort of metaphor like that that would allow people to make it helpful to see that the person actually isn't like fully suffering. They're experiencing discomfort. They're craving something in this hanger moment, food, um, but some way that we can sort of connect them to those feelings so that they can know that it's not at the level of like dying. Because sometimes, if not all the time, when somebody's trying to leave AMA, the expression, they're, you know, what they're leaving them with is like, this is horrible. Like, Worst ever. Worst yeah. possible situation I could be in. Um, in that regard, we know it's not the case, but sometimes families, right, it starts pulling on the heartstrings. You hear your loved one engaged in that negative energy and you want to alleviate it and you know, soften the suffering. But if we can help families see maybe a little bit that it's just not that bad and it's just something to walk through in a few moments, um, you know, maybe we can provide some additional support in that regard to alleviate that, that heartstring tension. So I don't know if hanger is the right thing. I'm, you know, again, I'm not a yeah. metaphor guy, but something we can help. Them. I mean, it's not, but it's, we'll use it. Okay. <laughs> it's really interesting that you've asked me for a metaphor, and then I'm like, I just can only think of like some concrete things I would say to people. <laughs> okay, let's do concrete really, wow. then. Uh, it feels really challenging in my part, and I, and I think the the first thing I would like to mention is that like that craving state. Really, what, what's happened kind of overall when somebody is using drugs is like drugs and alcohol are such an effective coping mechanism that all of the other coping mechanisms have atrophied. There we go. We're getting into muscle metaphor then. Uh, so like they, they don't, it's like they've only used one muscle in their entire body and all the other muscles uh, are still there, but they're just very weak. And so when clients come up against this discomfort, um, the only muscle they have to grab, the only muscle that has worked is to go, honestly, relieve that by getting high. And to your point, the, the way to do that then is to make your support system seem like the problem. And honestly, this, this has kind of echoes into kind of ongoing recovery too. Like, you know, when people have been sober three or four months and maybe are in it, it, more of an outpatient type setting, um, you know, I do talk to families about like, hey, if, if your loved ones start, if they start to seem like they're pushing their sponsor away or pushing uh, their loved ones away or their new support system away, that's an indication that they're slipping back into that same behavior of like, I'm beginning to make, I'm beginning to take my internal problems and externalize them a little bit. And then the, 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 the honestly, the nice thing is, is that in my experience of working with people that are like, you know what, I, I'm leaving today, I'm going to call my family, they're going to give me an airline ticket or whatever. I mean, I just have to get out of here, this place. Thank you all so much, by the way. It's usually yeah. pretty polite because 
I do think uh, clients that we work with feel pretty cared for. You guys are great, um, but I'm good. Uh, I've got this figured out. Um, I've watched that families hold boundaries. Usually there's this transition into, okay, I need to use my other muscles pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and really, um, that's just such an important piece of this process. And, and it's hard. <laughs> you know, I have kids yeah. too. And it's hard uh, at any time if my kids are having a hard time, whether it's at school or work or whatever, everything in me does want to rescue them. It's how we're kind of wired. Um, well, especially families that have like codependency or enmeshment or um, other sort of like difficult family system structures. I, I mean, those, you know, those are just triggered uh, exponentially. So it's not only because you're knowing that your, fam that your loved one is struggling, they're not there in front of you. You know, the rest of the family system is a bit dysregulated because they are absent. Um, and so I think that it kind of, uh, to a certain degree, can actually amplify or highlight other issues that are going on within the family system. So, um, and I think one way that I, that I can think about to sort of at, at least mitigate some of that tension is to really encourage families to act to really look into where they are sending their family members, right? Like get some like hard facts before they go, right? Like do a virtual tour, you know? Walk, have, have somebody walk you around the grounds, you know? Like actually um, explore beyond the website, you know? Talk to their primary clinician, you know? Reach out to, um, you reach out to, uh, you know, one thing that we do at Peaks is when a client's in detox, I mean, we immediately, we're, we're calling that family every single day. You know, we're just initiating that contact. But that's not, not every facility will do that. So sometimes that's going to be, um, it's going to, that's going to have to happen on the part of the family. But I think that that will help to draw some clarity around what's real and what's not real, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so at, at peaks, I'm going to be a little vulnerable here, share our outcome data, because um, that's another thing to think about when you call a treatment center. Are they pursuing outcome data? And are their outcomes improving over time? Which I'm proud of the fact that our outcomes are improving over time. And we are getting close to a 60% success rate 30 days post-treatment um, as, a, as a baseline number, just to kind of represent what's going on here. But are anybody who's left AMA couple days into treatment episode, those success rates are lower than 9% um, post 30 days leaving AMA. And really the picture I just want to set for families there is that the, the likelihood of success when a client calls to AMA and says, I've got this, unless there's an anomaly happening there, it is entirely not true and immediately going to move towards relapse as an episode. Um, so we're talking about we're having a conversation about this because individuals' lives are on the line in that moment. And when we um, lose you know, focus along the way or lose trust between us and the treatment center and so forth, um, it puts people in a pretty vulnerable situation. So we've been kind of teetering along the question a little bit here. The, the final question I want to ask is, you know, how, does, how can we, you know, and I think in ways we've said it, but how can we identify and let a family know when to trust the treatment center and when to trust the individual calling who's AMA in that regard. And I think that's a difficult balance between are they actually in a good setting? I think you've mm -hmm. pointed at do more than just talk to the admissions team. For admissions team, people are there to bring people in. They're excited about it. That's what their job is. And sometimes admissions people don't work for a good setting that's behind them in that regard. So. You know, maybe it's looking more into the treatment center on the front end. Maybe it's more about how are you going to communicate with me when my loved one gets there. But 
ultimately, what further you know, advice maybe can we give to help, you know, maybe three bullet points where we can give families to think about, okay, I actually think the treatment center is doing the right thing here. Okay, I actually hear Johnny pointing at things that are really problematic, and how do I identify that? I think that's interesting you asked that question because I know when you and I had talked years ago about building the Peaks website, I had said we have to have like a, a robust staff company page with our names and credentials and all of that because I do think, you know, the 14,000 programs, I think a way to tell if a program is uh, less than above bar is that they don't have a, a really, they're not proud of their staff because probably their <clears throat> staff rotates um, or they may in, be involved in unethical things so staff don't want to be on a, a company page either. Like to me, that's a big thing. And if, you know, with Peaks now in this Finding Peaks, like we have a catalog of the leadership of this program talking openly about mm -hmm. what we do. And if you can watch that and you're like, okay, you know, I might not agree with everything these guys say and they may be a little dull at times, uh, <laughs> but I can at least, they seem, they, uh, they at least seem like they're real people with real names and real credentials after them. I think that part really matters in, in that we live in our entire time right now, like our trusted sources, what do we trust? Like that's, that's the case in news, that's the case across the board in a Absolutely, lot of things. Yeah. And so this is kind of an ongoing thing, but I think where there's, if you can find the right people, and if you have access to a clinical team, if you, if you have access to who is working specifically and directly with your loved one, and if they can answer your questions transparently, um, and if you have good access to them, like we really push you know, multiple contacts with family per week uh, at Peaks because um, this is a whole family recovery right. process. And so um, if that's not happening for your loved one, then uh, that's a yellow flag, I would say. Maybe not a red flag, but a yellow flag. I've uh, said two, Quinn. You, you, I left you only with one. Wow. The most so powerful make it a good one. one. Yeah. So, no. I, I think one. I may have two, actually. But I think <laughs> another yellow flag would be a lack of family programming. Hmm. So uh, programs that don't invite the families in are, I don't know, I would just, uh, you know, addiction is a family disease, and it has to be addressed on the family system level. And if, if the program isn't designed to do that as part of its just primary function, then there's, I, I would question, uh, maybe not the integrity, but the efficacy of the program. Um, and the other thing, I think it just kind of a broader terms is just transparency. You know, if you never speak to somebody beyond the admissions line or beyond like the administrative line, then there's, that, is a, that, that is a red flag to me. Like you should be speaking to clinical people, to medical people, to case management, you should be um, to leadership. You know, you should have access and have uh, a pretty um, comfortable way and a pretty easy way in which to communicate with them. So uh, I think that that for me is going to be the sign or the best indicator of a program that is actually on the up and up and is really invested and interested in the, not only in the, in the client getting better, but in the family getting better in the process as well. Absolutely. And I heard some yellow flags. I don't know if we touched on a red flag or maybe it was the family. Just the run. Yeah. A true red flag is if they're flying or offering a plane ticket to your loved one, right. red flag. Like, don't do it. It is one of the most unethical things to do, and it goes against the grain of state laws, um, insurance benefit plans. There's 
it's a huge red flag and it's nonsense in this industry and it needs to go away. So I'm gonna I'm be a little passionate about that it's red passionate. flag Very um, in that regard. But I, I also think, you know, um, what you guys have said a lot about the website and the staff and the access to those are, are really important components. And also too, outcomes grow over time. And we know this in our experience from going back you know, several years ago when our outcomes weren't that great historically to where they're at today. They're growing over time because we're creating direction of care. You have to implement a curriculum. You have to be able to guide somebody through their recovery journey, through their emotions, through the medical side of things. And so many companies operate from process groups and process-based therapy in that regard. And though that's valuable in certain settings and in certain instances, it seems to fall well short of what is intended here and how we get into this direction of more positive outcomes for the family system and for the individual participating in treatment. So I also want to highlight, if you call a program and they don't have a curriculum, we'll call that a yellow flag too, yeah, yellow um, flag. in that regard, because they're not investing maybe a, maybe in- a dusty rose flag. Hmm. Dusty rose? Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, the yeah. pants. Like the pants. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. a dusty, so a dusty red flag in that regard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but when the outcomes start trending in the direction of not positive, that tells the program and informs them that something's wrong with the curriculum in the direction of care. And curriculums in that regard are meant to be adjusted over time. And that's how we know as a company culture we're moving in the right direction because we see it inching positively. And when we're, where we see AMAs, you know, we're not a perfect program. Of course, we see AMAs that are our you know, responsibility in that regard. We could have done better. You know, we respond to that. We address it in a curriculum. We, we address it as an interdisciplinary team. And so that, to me, also is, a, is an important indication for which you can ask treatment centers on the front and what that looks like. And as Clint is stating, if you're talking to an admissions person and they can't convey that curriculum, get a chief clinical officer on the phone or a mm -hmm. chief operating officer who is a clinician who can account for the curriculum and what it looks like for your loved one. Um, so before I, I take us out with my enthusiastic <laughs> exit strategy here. Uh -huh. Do you guys want to sprinkle anything else on there inspired by? I think we covered it. <clears throat> no, I, I guess um, just maybe a reiteration that treatment is tough, you know, like it's a tough process. Yeah. And there's, you, you are literally retraining the brain and the majority or a good portion of the time that a loved one is in treatment, they're going to be in some level of survival mode, um, which is very uncomfortable and will trigger some pretty uh, pretty strong emotional reactions, some pretty strong behavioral reactions. And I think that if you are aligned with a, a facility or a treatment center that is supporting you as a family uh, on all fronts, you know, by, by through transparency, access to clinicians, access to leadership, access to medical people, whatever the case may be, um, that that is going to be the best way to support the the client through this because it's it's inevitable it's going to be uncomfortable you know so um yeah i guess that's what i'd say all right so to reestablish the acronym on our way out here ama is against medical advice we're telling the individual this is not uh, we don't believe this is appropriate for you as a direction of care and because we believe you know at the end of the day that their life is in jeopardy but there is a balance here between the individual being correct and the treatment center being correct and um, hopefully over time we can continue to educate and update on this uh, important topic as well too about direction of care. So in closing, uh, questions, thoughts, concerns, ideas, please send it to findingpeaks at peaksrecovery.com. 
Uh, look us up on the gram, the Facebook, the the, gram. the kids, whatever they're looking. Snapchat? Snapchat. I don't, I don't, I don't know, know if we're on a Snapchat. Yeah. I don't know if we do that. Yeah. But um, it, so. App Store, Podcast, iTunes. Love you all. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you again next time.